Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would teach us and guide us and lead us this morning. As we look to your word, we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. My library, I have a book on the shelf that uh, was written in the mid-1600s by a man named William Bridge. And the book basically is a, a, a book of sermons. There are 13 sermons in this book that uh, Pastor Bridge preached on Psalm 42 and verse 11. Uh, he preached a total of 13 sermons on that single verse. Uh, now, I don't intend to preach 13 sermons on the text that we come to this morning, but um, I, I would like to look at it one more time, okay? <laughs> Last time we looked at this text, we spent some time developing the background. You know, the story begins when a lawyer asks Jesus, which is the great uh, commandment in the law, verse 36, and Jesus responds and uh, by describing the first and great commandment in verse 38 and giving the great commandment in verse 37. You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And last time we looked at this, uh, we saw that it is indeed this love that really is at the heart uh, of our relationship with God. Uh, it is this love, and uh, I spent some time showing uh, that this love is a gift from God. And it's really important that we see that. Uh, this love is a gift from God. We don't try to generate this in your heart. Don't try to just work yourself up uh, uh, with this love for God. It's, it's something that's supernatural. It's something that comes from above. In fact, we looked at 1 John 4, 7 as one of the verses that clearly teach that. The Apostle John puts it like this. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So we see that this love comes from God. And we also see uh, the one here who, uh, who loves God. He is the one who has been born again. It's, it's part of the conversion uh, package, if you will, this love uh, for God. And uh, the one who loves God is the one who knows God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that uh, the one who loves God is also known by God. So it's a supernatural thing. It's a gift from God. We saw that it's also a, that, that this love is a response to God. It's a response. You know, uh, 1 John 4.19, we love God because He first loved us. That's a response to what Christ has done for us, isn't it? And the main point that I made last week is that this love is at the heart of our relationship with God. So, you know, if we get our prepositions correct, you know, this love is from God. It's a response to God. 
And it's at the heart of our relationship with God. That makes sense. That's what we were looking at last week. Now, um, really, what this really comes down to, this, this love, I mean, if, if we wanted to... Yeah, if we wanted to put it this way, I, I sat with a, a person on, on Thursday and was really sitting down and, and talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with them. And, uh, you know, after Genesis 3, after the fall of humanity, one of the points I wanted to make with this person was there's only two types of people after Genesis 3. There's only one type of people prior to Genesis 3. There's only one category. But after Genesis 3, there's only two categories. Uh, there are believers and there are unbelievers. Uh, there are those who believe and there are those who don't believe. There's only two categories of people in this world, uh, broadly speaking. And the essential difference between uh, the one who believes and the one who doesn't believe is the presence of this love. Uh, it really is this love. Now, uh, what, <laughs> if we look at it that way, I mean, what could be more important than getting this love right? If the real difference between uh, eternal life and eternal death is this love, then what could be more important than getting this love right? That's why I wanted to invest another Sunday on this text. And I, I don't think we could invest too many Sundays on this text. If we wanted to do 13 sermons on this text, it wouldn't be a problem. It really wouldn't be. We, we could do that quite easily. Uh, because this morning I'm going to give you a number of things. And, Please be, keep in mind, everything that I give you this morning could be a sermon within itself, actually several sermons. It's going to be a kind of a broad uh, brush. But what I would like to do this, this morning really is I want to revisit this issue of love for God. I would like to look at it from a couple of different vantage points. First, I'd like to talk about what this love is. Secondly, what this love is not. In fact, we're actually going to start with what this love is not, so that sometimes by looking at what something is not, it helps us to understand what something is. So we'll start by looking at what it is not. From there, we'll look at what it is. And then from there, we'll conclude by looking at how we obtain this love. And once it's obtained, how do we fan it into flame? How do we nurture it? What role do we play in that? Say, that makes sense? So we'll start with what this love is not. You know, before I became a true believer, I, I really believed I was a believer. You've heard me say that many times. I've said that to many of you in private, and I've said it many times here. Before I became a true believer, I believed I was a believer. And uh, before I became a true believer, if someone would have suggested to me that I didn't love God, I would have been offended by that. I would have found that offensive. I would have probably have thought, what do you mean? How can you, what do you mean I don't love God? Who are you to tell me I don't love God? And those are the kind of thoughts that would have went through my mind and through my heart. But, um, uh, <laughs> as offended as I would have been had somebody told me that I didn't love God, it would have been true. It would have been true. Now, I did experience something towards God. I experienced what Charles Spurgeon used to call a cold admiration. I think that's a great phrase. A cold 
admiration. You know, uh, I, I admired God because I knew that's what I ought to do. I, I, I admired him. I mean, who, who, would, who would suggest that we don't admire God? I admired him because I knew that's what I, I should do, but I, I didn't live to serve him. I didn't obey his commandments. I didn't worship in the company of his sons and daughters. I never darkened the door of a church. I didn't read my Bible. I didn't study my Bible. What kind of love is that? It's a funny way of showing love, isn't it? I mean, I, I was nowhere to be found on the Lord's day. I never gathered with his children to worship. I lived completely for myself. I didn't live for God. And again, what kind of love is that? That's a cold admiration. A cold admiration. Now, I, I'm firing a warning shot here because the evil one wants everybody to believe that all is well between them and the Lord. Uh, that's, 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 what the, that's one of the evil one's favorite tactics is to make all of us believe that everything's okay between us and the Lord. And maybe everything is okay with us between, between us and the Lord. If we've come to true faith and true repentance in Christ Jesus and we're trusting in the finished work of Christ, everything is okay. But let's fire warning shots from time to time because there's a lot of cold admiration out there. There is an enormous amount of cold admiration out there and if the devil can convince the unbelieving heart that they love God with this cold admiration then there's no reason to seek anything further is there there's no reason to seek any further so let's be sure of this you know there's definitely cold admiration going on right now as we speak and the purpose of this sermon really is in the event that that's taking place here uh, we want to be used by the Holy Spirit to awaken that. But a, 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 apart from here, I mean, we, want to, we, want to, we need to have the tools and the skill sets to be able to minister to those who are around us. Because there's a lot of cold admiration out there. The love of God is not cold admiration. Real true love to God is what a man by the name of Wilhelmus of Brockle. I don't know if anyone's ever heard that name, Wilhelmus of Brockle. Uh, he used to call love for God a sweet motion of the heart toward God. Isn't that a lovely sentence? And when you set the two right beside each other, I think it, I think it helps to bring into focus what we're talking about here. It's not a cold admiration but a sweet motion of the heart toward God. In fact, let me give you his entire definition. A brockle in his, you know, in his four-volume magnum opus uh, entitled A Christian Reasonable Service, he offers this definition. Love is the sweet motion of the heart toward God, infused into the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? Infused in the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a gift from God. We don't... We don't work ourselves up into this. This is something that we receive. Infused into the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit, whereby they, by virtue of union with Him and in view of His perfections, delight themselves in God and in a joyous embrace of His will, fully surrender themselves to His service. Now, I know that's a lot. That's a lot to stand up here and read and alone to try to sit and take in. So let me flesh it out a little bit. You know, far from being a cold admiration, you know, true love for God is this sweet activity of the heart, this sweet 
uh, motion of the heart, if you will, uh, that actively delights in God. There's this active delight. There's this active joy. Uh, there's, there's this enjoyment, if you will, of his perfections, and there's a surrender of the heart uh, to God that takes place uh, as a heart enjoys this uh, love for God or this sweet motion of the heart. Now, what I want to do here for the next few minutes is just really flesh that out. Uh, let's flesh that out. And sometimes I tease you, you know, I tell you, you know, write these three things down or write those four things down. And I shouldn't tease you too much about that because when I really want you to write something down, you're going to think, oh, he's just teasing again. I have no need to get a pen or a pencil, but I'm not teasing this time. If you've got a pen or a pencil and you like to make notes in your bulletin, this would be a really good time because I'm going to give you seven marks of a heart that loves God. If you don't have nothing to write with, that's fine. All you have to do is email me or call me and I'll send you I'll send you this entire sermon. I, I now write them out fully so that I can pass them out. Uh, so if you don't have nothing to write with, but by writing it down, it helps you to remember it. And there's seven marks here that we need to look for as we think about what this love for God is. And the first one is a, a longing for His presence. A longing for His presence. Uh, Psalm 42, in verses 1 to two famously says, you know this verse, as the deer pants for flowing streams of water, you know, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Uh, when shall I come and appear before God? You know, this is a, a beautiful testimony of a man who has walked with God for quite some time. And he's a, the psalmist, probably King David, is a man who loves God. Uh, deeply, deeply loves God. And notice how he's, ex he's, he's expressing this love for God uh, with the feeling of thirst. Uh, all of us have had the experience of working in the hot sun or playing athletics in the hot sun. Uh, it, it makes you very thirsty, doesn't it? You know, split wood in the hot sun for a little while and you'll be looking for a drink of water. Uh, what does it feel like to deny your body that hydration? What does it feel like to deny yourself that water? That, that, that can really turn into something that's quite agonizing quite quick. Uh, thirst is a, a very powerful, uh, powerful. When our bodies need water, they tell us that, and they tell us that very powerfully. And it is this agonizing pain that the psalmist uses to describe uh, his longing for the presence of God. Now, uh, let me be sure here. I'm not saying that we're going to experience this to the degree that King David did. In fact, as I go through these lists of things, please be advised that uh, these things may only be in embryonic form. They may only be in their infancy. Uh, we are, in this lifetime, we are not going to be expressing these things in perfection. That is for sure. But there should be at least an ember of this longing for God. The heart that loves God longs for God. That's all there is to it. You think about your friends. If you, you long for your friends. If you don't see your friends for a while, your heart longs for them, does it not? And if we love God, we long for God. Secondly, if we love God, we find joy in God. 
Psalm 32, verse 11 is one of the many places we could go to for this. It shouts, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If we love God, we find joy in Him. And again, we can apply this to our friends. We can apply it to our spouses. You know, hopefully we find joy in our spouses. I hope so. I find lots of joy in mine. I hope that's true of every one of us. That's why we got married, isn't it? It's one of the products of love. If we love God, we're going to find joy in God. And the framers of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we're going to be studying starting in January, uh, begins with this famous question, what is the chief end of man? Or what is the, in other words, why are we here? Uh, what is the chief end of man? And, and probably all of you know the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? That idea of enjoying God, enjoying Him forever. And the third mark is a longing to please God. Psalm 104, verse 34. Uh, the psalmist expresses these words. He says, may my meditations be pleasing to Him. May my meditations be pleasing to Him. This is one of the marks of a, of a heart that loves God, is it lives to please God. Uh, and and it, it mourns when it, when it falls short, which obviously we fall short much of the time, don't we? We'll get to that in a minute. But there should be this, this principle in your life, if you're in a state of grace, there's this principle in your life that really is longing uh, to please uh, God. Uh, the fourth would be a jealousy for His glory. You know, if we love someone, we do not want to hear their name run through the mud, do we? I hope not. That's a funny way of showing love, isn't it? No, we become quite jealous and protective of their name. We, nobody here wants to hear someone run our kids through the mud, do we? Do we like that kind of thing? No way. No way. So, the heart that loves God is going to shudder when they hear His name used in vain. It's going to shudder. Now, with that, I'm not saying that... Uh, uh, that a Christian is incapable of using the Lord's name in vain. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, it's, we're, we're capable of committing about anything. But here's the difference. If a true believer uses the Lord's name in vain, afterwards he's going to be mighty miserable for doing so. If we can use the Lord's name in vain, if we can use Christ's name in vain and move on like nothing ever happened, you are a stranger to grace and you're on the outside of the covenant of life and God's wrath is upon you I hear this all the time people who are claiming to be Christians and using Christ's name in vain like that I think how is that possible it is possible I, I'm capable of doing it but what happens when a true believer does you're going to be miserable and on your knees. The Holy Spirit's not going to let you go on like that. Jealousy for His glory. Fifthly, a willingness to suffer for Him. 
And this comes from our scripture memory verse this morning. You know, the apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, the, the cold admirer isn't even willing to be embarrassed for Christ, let alone suffer all things for him. You know, we think about our stuff, you know. Uh, Americans like stuff. We like, her, we like our stuff. Uh, we got lots of stuff. Uh, do we love our stuff more than we love then we love the Lord. I mean, are we willing to get rid of our stuff? Are we, willing, are we willing to put all of our stuff? I mean, everything. Are we willing to just lay that here before the Lord and say, you know, Lord, you're free to have it all, whatever you want. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we ought to march out here and get rid of all of our stuff. I'm not saying that. Unless your stuff is between you and the Lord. What I am saying is we should be making... A heart that loves the Lord is making it available to the Lord. Here it is, Lord. Do what you want with it. Here it is. Do what you want. The sweet motion of the heart that's been born of grace above, it really it, it willingly lays these things before the Lord, uh, oftentimes in an increasingly way. In an increasing way. A, a, a new Christian, a baby Christian, might not be willing to do this with everything at the start. But there'll be a progression in their life where, you know, something by the Lord's grace, he begins to strengthen us in our faith to where we start to let go of more and more and more, right? That's that sweet motion of the heart towards God. Sixth, putting God before all else. Some of you will remember when we were way back in Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Boy, when you read that one for the first time, that's a shocking statement, isn't it? Doesn't that just sit you down and make you pause? You can't read that sentence and just keep on cruising, can you? What is that all about? But as you think it through, it actually begins to make perfect sense. I mean, we love our parents very dearly. We love our kids very dearly. But where did our parents come from? Where did our children come from? They come from the Father. Now, should we love the gifts that our Father gives us more than our Father? I know all of you well enough to know that, it, that if someone suggested to you that you're the type of person that that likes the things your parents give you more than your parents, you'd find that very offensive, right? I'd find it very offensive. But if we love our children and our parents more than God, more than the Father, we are that individual, aren't we? No wonder the author to the letter of Hebrews said the word of God is living and active and able to divide the spirit and the soul, doesn't the Word of God, the Word of God just cuts you open, doesn't it? And it just lays your heart bare before God, doesn't it? I don't like to think of myself as that kind of person that would, that would love what my father gave me more than my father. I don't like to think of myself that way, but I have a history of proving that I am that kind of person. And I have a sneaking suspicion 
this morning that I'm not alone. Jesus is not telling us not to love our parents. He's not telling us not to love our children. He's directing us in how we should just love God more because he's the one who gave them to you. Now it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Now it's not such a, a shocking statement, but it's one that leaves a thorn behind, isn't it? That's what it's meant to do so that we can be changed by it, so that we can come to Jesus with it and say, you know, wow, I am this kind of person, Lord. I don't want to be this kind of person. Change me, oh God. And you know what will happen? He'll change you. And then you know what will happen? You'll love him for it. You'll love him for it. Isn't that wonderful? And that leads into the last, the last one, hatred of sin. Jesus is... Um, um, uh, it's basically you know, the, the last move that I just made really leads this way hatred of sin it, if we long for God if we find joy in God you know if all of these things that I've mentioned are so if we want to please God then we're going to find ourselves hating sin more and more and more because we all know that sin what it separates us from God, does it not? And we're not going to, we're not going to want to uh, be involved in things that displease God because we don't want to separate ourselves uh, from God. On the contrary, the new nature that God gives us as part of our conversion uh, really it causes, I mean, why did we repent of our sins? Because we hate it. We want it changed. That's why we repented of our sin. By faith, we begin to see ourselves as sinners then we repent of that sin as we come to the Lord. And there's a new principle in our hearts that hates sin. Why? Because it separates us from God. Because it's against, it's a violation, it's a rebellion against the one who loves us so very dearly. Uh, we, we won't want anything to do with that. And I'm not, again, please, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we're going to be doing these things perfectly in this lifetime. We're not. But what I am saying is that the heart that loves God is going to find these principles in their heart, perhaps only in embryonic form, perhaps only just a sliver of these things will be taking place in your heart. But there should be evidence of them there. There should be evidence of them there. So th 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 this naturally leads us to the last, really the last angle that I wanna look at, and is how do we receive this love? And I'm not saying this because I think that nobody here has received this love. I, I don't think that. I think many of you have received this love. But how did it happen? How did we receive this love? Well, you, 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 first of all, you can't love somebody you don't know. Can you? I mean, we can in some respects, but I mean to love like this. Love like this, you, you have to know a person to love them like this. In fact, the English Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote, he said, the antecedent of love is knowledge. The antecedent of love is knowledge. What he is saying there is, is he's saying behind this love for God is knowledge of God. Uh, not just simply facts about God, but knowing who God is. Knowing Him in the way that we know each other. We're, 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 we're always learning more about one another, aren't we? As we continue to open up 
to each other. We learn more things about one another. Uh, and as we, uh, as, we get to, as, we, as we gain this type of knowledge, we get to know each other better. The antecedent of love is knowledge. He continues to write, The Spirit shines upon the understanding and discovers the beauties of, of wisdom, holiness, and mercy in God. And these are the lodestone to entice and draw out love to God. Let me read that again. The antecedent of love is knowledge. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, shines upon the understanding and discovers the beauties of wisdom, holiness, and mercy in God. And these are the lodestone to entice us uh, to draw out love to God. Now, what's all that mean? What am I saying with all of that? Some of you probably got it. If you're like me, you've got to keep looking at it. Well, what's it mean is there's nothing unlovely about God, first of all. So in order to love God, all we got to do is get to know God. And we get to know God as the Holy Spirit shines in our understanding, opening up our eyes and our ears so that we can see Christ, so that we can see God in His wonderful glories and His majesty and in His beauty. That's basically what... Thomas Watson is saying to us, so how do we receive the love of God? We receive the love of God the same way we receive salvation, through faith and repentance. It's through faith and repentance. I mean, by faith, our, our proud hearts are awakened, and we, we come to discover our spiritual bankruptcy. I mean, that has to take place. Who's going to look for a Savior if you don't think you're dying, if you don't think something's wrong? We're not going to look for a Savior if we don't think something's wrong. The Holy Spirit comes in our hearts, convicts us that something's wrong. We begin to look for a Savior. Well, we look for a Savior. And then the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes so that we can see the beautiful arms of Jesus Christ. Arms that are very strong, yet very tender. You know, when you first get, sometimes when you first get convicted of your, of your sins, you, you don't necessarily want to go to God because you're so ashamed to go to God. Sometimes we can get hung up there. I got hung up there early on. How can I face Him? I'm so, oh my goodness, studying the law of God, studying the Ten Commandments, studying the Sermon on the Mount. Why would He want anything to do with me? If you've ever been through that, you know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to tell you what, your heart will melt when he finally opens up your eyes to those beautiful arms. Those outstretched arms that are ready to take you and pull you into himself right where he wants you to be for all eternity. That melts the heart. And that is what Jesus is like. And the more we get to know about what Jesus is like, the more we love Him. So we receive this love the same way we receive salvation. Nothing draws out love like the sight of Christ's merciful and gracious arms. And secondly, a steady diet of, of preaching and teaching like many of you are committed to. This is God's method. I'm not just saying this because I'm preaching. I'm saying this because a pr the preaching ministry is so vitally important to the health of a congregation. And I, I might use this, you know, as an opportunity to say, listen, every one of us is involved in the preaching ministry here. Did you know that? 
Some of you say, what? What are you talking about? Every one of us is involved in the preaching ministry here. Okay, you're not suggesting that one of these days you're going to call on me to come and preach, are you? No, I'm not suggesting that. Um, what I'm suggesting is that preaching is a spiritual exercise. There is no human being who has the gifts, the talents, and the empowerment to preach on his own. If this preaching ministry here is going to be effective, it's going to be effective only because God is visiting us in this place. And it's only going to be because God is speaking to our hearts as we gather together on these Sunday mornings. Now, God has a tendency to go where He is wanted. And He has a tendency to shun where He is not wanted. And by praying week in and week out for the preaching ministry at Tri-State Community Church, you're expressing to God that you want to hear from Him. And that's exactly the way I would suggest you pray. Lord, I want to hear from you on those Sunday mornings. I want to hear your voice. I want, to, I want you to open up your word to my heart. I want you to open up my eyes to see the glories and the beauties of Christ that I may love you more and more and more and more. That's where God comes. That's where He shows up. We're all involved in this, aren't we? This might be something new for some of us, but I can assure you the ministry, the preaching ministry here will be completely, completely reformed as, as we commit to praying for it. So I ask for your prayers for myself and as I prepare. And I ask that you would pray that the Lord will speak to you uh, on these Sunday mornings. Thirdly, uh, this one is really simple. I mean, if we, want, if we want to nurture our love for God, pray for it. You know, I don't mean to come with you with something that's that obvious, but maybe it isn't that obvious. Pray for love. Have you ever asked the Lord to increase your love for Him? It's both a confession and a petition wrapped in one, isn't it? If I say to the Lord, Lord, I, I want you to increase my love for you, I'm confessing that my love for Him is inadequate. Why else would I, would I, would I do it? So it's a confession, and it's also a petition. I realize that my love for you is not what it could be. It's insufficient. I want it increased. I want it, I want it to increase. I want all of these seven marks that I heard about this morning to be increasing. I want to fan this into flame, Lord. Please, by all means, increase this love for you in my heart. And fourthly, let us call on God to make us cold toward everything that is between us and Him. A heart that is warm to worldliness is cold to God. But a heart that is warm to God is cold to worldliness. As our hearts warm to God, our lives are going to be radically changed. Because they're going to become cold to pride and selfish ambition, stuff that we're going to talk about tonight in 2 Corinthians 5. So in conclusion, you know, I just say, as I was preparing this message, I read a lot of material. I read a lot of old books. I read a lot of new books. 
And one of the differences between uh, the old books and the new books is right here. The newer authors have a tendency to say this. None of us love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. So let's repent of this. And then they move on. And that is 100% true. None of us in this life will love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might, and all of our strength. As we grow closer and closer to God, we're going to mourn over the fact that we don't love Him like we ought to. That's the mark of a spiritually mature person. I wish I could love Him more. All I want is to love Him more. The closer we get, that's the way we're going to feel. And then the newer authors have a tendency to move on. The older authors, they don't do that so quickly. And I find this quite striking. No, they continue to spill ink. They stay right here. They continue to spill ink and enthusiastically call the church to nurture this love. It's not time to move on yet. Nurture this love. Fan this love into flame. May these embers grow into a bright flame that consumes us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be absolutely wonderful? Why should we be satisfied with a weak love towards God? Everything that Jesus has done for us, why should we be satisfied with a, le a weak response of love to Him? We, we, shouldn't be we shouldn't be satisfied with that, should we? So let's fan it in flame. Let's seek this love. Let's seek its increase. Let's seek to nurture it. Let's seek to grow it. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord of heaven and earth, author and captain of our salvation, and the giver and dispenser of love, we call on you, O Lord, that you would be pleased to pour your love into our hearts afresh this morning. And O Lord, if there's anyone here who is a cold admirer, we ask, O Lord, that you would be pleased. You'd be pleased, O Lord, to come and speak with that individual, Lord. That there would be nobody present here, O Lord, who could be described as such. But this would be truly a group of people, a body of people, whose hearts are throbbing for you. You are offering this love and it is ours for the taking, simply by faith. So, oh Lord, we pray that you would dispense that to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.